So we've got to stop sending a mixed message. We've got to tell people decisively they're on their own. But then we've also got to equip them to be on their own. In a world filled with chaos and a myriad of risks, there is opportunity. You're listening to Riding the Wave, project management for emergency managers, where we discuss how we adapt and rise above those rolling waves of hazards and threats we face and rise to the top. And now your host, the president of Pinnacle Performance Management, Andrew Boyarski. I have as my guest today, Vincent uh, B. Davis, who's Director of Disaster Services at Feeding America, which is a network of over 200 food banks that they support throughout the United States. He's also a seasoned consultant, an author, a speaker with extensive experience in emergency management planning, training, crisis management, community relations, program management and development. He's also a proud U.S. military veteran. We want to thank you for your service. Uh, you. He is dedicated to changing outcomes for disaster-affected communities. Uh, his portfolio of success includes 23 years in the U.S. Air Force, Air and Army National Guard, and emergency management roles at FEMA, American Red Cross, Walgreens, Sony, and Amazon. He also has done extensive work in underserved communities, including training and preparedness planning with tribal partners, community organizations, and veterans. And uh, Vince, I just want to say how... Uh, Excited I am to speak to you and to welcome you to the podcast. Well, thank you. And it's great to be here, uh, Andrew. We really appreciate uh, your time and, and uh, your reaching out to us to be uh, to be part of the podcast. So, so one thing uh, before I get started, I'll uh, mention to our listening audience uh, and to the students who may watch this, uh, that uh, all the links that we're going to talk about and links to your site are all going to be posted so that they can have access to them. I wanna start off with a reference to an open letter that you posted recently to the nominated FEMA administrator, uh, Deanne Criswell, uh, who is the current commissioner of the New York City Emergency Management Department. Uh, and I should mention to our listening audience, if they don't know, I am in the New York area, you're in the Chicago area, or I guess they also often refer to it as Chicagoland. Uh, which, <laughs> which I think is appropriate since it's much broader than just the immediate city of Chicago. So she would be the first female FEMA administrator or head of FEMA if she is confirmed. You cited in your open letter the need to improve on FEMA's poor record on equity, diversity, and inclusion, often referred to as EDI, uh, and call on her to appoint an independent committee to review and make recommendations on how to improve EDI at FEMA. If she were to appoint you, let's say, as the head of that committee, uh, that would make what, what immediate goals would you set? Well, uh, so glad you asked that question. Uh, and one of the reasons that I decided to to send that open letter uh, was uh, was to bring attention to what's already been an ongoing dialogue and discussion around equity, diversity, and inclusion in a general sense. Uh, emergency management being one of the major uh, if you will, uh, failures to, to accomplish that. Um, 80, 86% of uh, all uh, director level emergency managers in the United States uh, are white males, according to um, CDC and according to uh, Department of Commerce uh, records. It, it's an appalling record of, 
of, of really a lack of diversity and inclusion in this profession. So I thought in calling that out to the new FEMA uh, administrator, it would accomplish two things. One is the first female to head again, if she is approved uh, uh, by the Senate to head FEMA. Uh, I'm sure she has been through the wars with trying as a woman to, to be successful in the profession of emergency management. Women have actually fared a lot better <laughs> than minorities uh, in that space. And a lot of that is thanks to a really wonderful woman, uh, Dr. Jacqueline McBride, who started an organization some years ago called the uh, Institute for Women in Emergency Management in support of women in the field. So I, I reached out to Deanne to give her uh, an opportunity to really decisively address these issues, which have been kind of skirted around, not only in FEMA, but outside of FEMA and with other organizations that support emergency management. So, you know, what I've prepared for her that you haven't seen and that I didn't put in that letter was a 10-point program of specific things that I would want and expect that commission, uh, if you will, to do. One is to establish an, a, a request that the uh, International Association of Emergency Management, with which FEMA is very closely aligned, although they are not specifically, you know, sister organizations, but very closely aligned, uh, collaborate with Native organizations uh, like the National Tribal Emergency Management Agency and others like the Black Emergency Managers Association. That has not been done to this point. It's been more of a competition rather than a collaboration, and that has to stop. So the other is to introduce a re resolution through the National Emergency Management Association to increase the number of Black indigenous and people of color in EM positions at the state agency, at the local agency, and at the director level. Uh, I think FEMA has to, a responsibility to lead the way on this. A, because their delinquency and, and, and lack of diversity and inclusion, in my opinion, has contributed to poor outcomes in minority communities. If you don't have people working these disasters that look like you, and understand what your issues and problems are. Uh, it's not that everybody that's out there doing disaster work is not out there doing it for all the right reasons. It's a lack of diversity that causes problems and issues. Mm -hmm. So on that note, and it, and I you know I realize for federal bureaucracies that it takes time for them to move right and to to take action at state, county, local level. Uh, an emergency manager has a greater amount of influence and also not just in the nonprofit or governmental sector, but also within uh, corporate environments, you know, and, and, uh, you know, large firms uh, to medium sized to small firms. How do we meaningfully engage communities of color, marginalized communities in emergency preparedness and management? Well, uh, it's, it starts with a couple of things. Um, you know, one, we have to meet people where they are. You know, General Russell Honore, who was the, the uh, if you remember, uh, Hurricane Katrina general who came in and said, lower your weapons, this is America, not a war zone, uh, and, and we're stuck on stupid. Uh, General Honore, who recently was appointed actually uh, by, the, uh, by, by Congress to investigate uh, the, uh, the Capitol Police situation with the insurrection, said that one's ability to survive a disaster directly related to what they were doing before the disaster. And he was talking about Katrina in specific. Mm -hmm. 
1,836 people who perished in Katrina died because they were unprepared for anything that occurred. So even after the evacuation failed and the Superdome became the shelter of last resort, the lack of preparedness contributed to horrific suffering. So to answer your question, how do we engage those communities? We've got to meet people where they are. We've got to stop telling people a mixed message, which uh, Homeland Security and FEMA in particular has been guilty of. And that is, hey, get a kit, prepare for disasters, make a plan. But oh, if you don't, we'll come save you. Don't worry, we got this under control. So we've got to stop sending a mixed message. We've got to tell people decisively they're on their own. But then we've also got to equip them to be on their own and not just tell them, oh, by the way, you're on your own. So go out and uh, buy a disaster kit and everything will be fine. So uh, we got to start really having a meaningful dialogue with these marginalized communities to make sure that we, first of all, demystify the disaster system. Because if people don't understand how the system works, they're not going to understand how to make the system work for them. And then uh, to, to educate people in every possible way as to what they need to do to take care of themselves. You're familiar with uh, this saying, we often say in emergency management that we have the resources we need to respond. They're just unevenly distributed. I mean, I'm, and I'm referring to, you know, developed uh, nations like, you know, the United States, although, you know, uh, one could question whether that is, is an absolute when it comes to certain states, certain communities, and so forth. Where do you feel we need to invest our emergency management budgets at the federal, state, and local level? Well, uh, for years, we poured billions of dollars into response, and I think that that was necessary. I think there was a time, you know, going back into the uh, into the era when FEMA was created back in the late 70s, uh, when emergency management was sort of fragmented into regional kind of operations. And the intent was then to get the state and local governments up to speed and get everybody on the same page. 9-11 galvanized that with the creation and the, and the, uh, the, the organization of Homeland Security and the National Response Framework. I, I happened to be on a panel uh, back in 2002 that reviewed some of the uh, first drafts of what became the National Response Plan. Uh, and uh, the problem again there was that we didn't know what we didn't know. There were literally 25 or so emergency managers in a room in Arlington, Virginia, pouring over these voluminous you know, papers of, uh, and, and, and volumes of doctrine about emergency preparedness and emergency management. And we pretty clearly understood mitigation to some degree we understood response and what that was and what was entailed. We understood recovery. What we didn't understand was preparedness. And again, that lack of diversity is what led us down the path of failure in terms of the preparedness end of it. So to answer your question, I think now is the time that we need to really seriously focus on preparedness versus response. There's a statistic that I'm sure you've heard from time to time that says for every dollar spent on preparedness, you save six to $9 in the cost of response. But more importantly, the, 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 the fact of the matter is, and nobody in emergency management can deny this, we keep making the same mistake over and over again. And that is no matter what the disaster, we turn around and after in our after action reports, we say, 
boy, we've got to do better in supporting those underserved communities because they really, they really caught the brunt of uh, the disaster at this point. So I think we need to focus our resources on preparedness and not just in a general sense as we have, but in a specific sense to say, we need to focus our efforts on preparing the least prepared because those are the people we're gonna have to rescue when things go south. You know, the Conservative Heritage Foundation uh, after Hurricane Sandy uh, came out with a report and in that report uh, that said, uh, do no harm. And that is uh, the system cannot erode the ability for people to take care of themselves so that the first responders can focus on the people who are unable to take care of themselves. So we've got to do a better job of preparing people and we've got to stop talking about preparedness as though it's uh, some kind of commodity and start talking about preparedness and, and doing preparedness in a meaningful way that's going to create tangible results. I want to get to that uh, when we talk a little bit about metrics. I want to address some uh, some immediate areas of concern that's around the pandemic. And to quote a recent uh, CDC report, a study of selected states and cities with data on COVID-19 deaths by race and ethnicity showed that 34% of deaths were among non-Hispanic Black people, though this group accounts for only 12% of the total U.S. population. Now, uh, personally, I find this appalling to be the case. We also know our government and society has a terrible record when it comes to medical research and vaccination programs going back decades. How do we address these issues and where do we go from here to improve this record? Yeah, so glad you brought that up. And again, uh, that's been the subject of a lot of studies and a, and a ton of data, as you cited, with regard to the disparities uh, among race and among ethnicities. Uh, you know, an analysis uh, by the Center for Disease Control you know, underscores the extent of that vulnerability. You know, African-Americans ages 65 to 74 died of COVID at five times the rate of, of whites. In the 75 to 84 group, the death rate was three and a half times greater. Uh, so it's clear that these disparities have a greater effect on who survives. And, and there's a lot of factors involved as to how we fix that. But when I think clearly of the half million people who have uh, died from this, nearly half million people who have died from this virus, I think we have to start looking at this in terms of people and how it's impacting them. When I think about this, I think about my dear brother, Carl, who lost his life last September to COVID-19. Um, and I think about the more than a dozen friends and family uh, that have lost their lives uh, that aren't just numbers. Um, you know, uh, and I think we like to put numbers to things uh, when we're talking about problems that are huge and enormous, but I think we have to get this down to pavement level where we're talking about people because that's what's going to make us change our behavior when it becomes personal. Former comedian and activist Dick Gregory in, 19, in his 1969 album called The Light Side and the Dark Side qualified the Kerner Commission report on civil disorders following the riots uh, after the assassination of Martin Luther King. What the Kerner Commission report said is that to solve the problems in the black community, you're gonna to have to bring $80 billion into the black community. <laughs> to which Gregory, who was a comedian at heart, replied, I hope they don't bring $80 billion into the black community because they're gonna have the darndest four day crap game you've ever seen in your life. Uh, then he became more serious and said, the problem is not money. It's not the amount of financial resources 
so much as it is in order to solve the problems in the black communities uh, that are dealing with these healthcare disparities and dealing with all kinds of racial and social injustice is we are going to have to create an atmosphere where black and white people trust one another. Mm -hmm. yeah. And until we do that, we're not going to be successful at solving any of the problems. The other thing that I want to point out in fairness, and this is going to be coming out in my book that uh, I'm hoping will be hitting the streets sometime in March or April, uh, my new book called Preparedness Matters, the uh, Black Community Guide to Surviving Disasters, is uh, the Black community itself has to take some responsibility and ownership for some of the problems that we have. Uh, and when I say that, uh, I don't don't want to mean to sound like one of those, let's blame the victims, but we do have to, and I, I touch on this in very uh, succinct detail in the book, uh, take some ownership with regard to misinformation and disinformation uh, that goes on in the Black community. Early on when the COVID-19 pandemic hit, for example, I was hearing friends and seeing people on Facebook talking about things like, well, we don't have to worry because Black people can't get COVID-19. A lot of that misinformation led to a lot of careless behavior and, and deaths surrounding COVID-19. Uh, so we have to take some ownership of the misinformation that goes on in our own communities. And then uh, I'm very, uh, very much uh, pointing to things like the role of the African-American uh, church and faith community, uh, which used to be the clearinghouse. And I say used to be, I, I speak from a person who was you know, a 16-year-old high schooler when Dr. Martin Luther King was assassinated, uh, when the, the Black church was the hub, if you will, for all things social justice in the Black community, to now being a shell of itself, where it really has little or no influence uh, over what goes on in the community. So the Black church has to step up and take its rightful place, as, as I see it, uh, as the, uh, the hub and spoke for, for all things that affect the community, uh, the Black community as a whole. And then Black communities themselves have to be disaster literate so that we're not as susceptible to rumors, uh, propaganda, falsehoods, and, and uh, misinformation that, that flows during disasters like COVID-19 and frankly, during, uh, during regular disasters. I've seen it firsthand as a community relations officer for FEMA where I've been out in the field into these communities. I've heard what people say. I've seen it and heard it from my friends and family members and people that I associate with. So there's two, two fronts on which we need to fight. One is we need to fight the racial disparities and discrimination that goes on. Uh, and two, we need to also take some ownership of how we are handling these, these situations uh, so that we, we can't fix everything, but we can certainly fix the things that are within our control. Before I get to my next question, I just wanted to uh, express my personal condolences, passing of your brother and those people that are close to you from, from COVID. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a difficult time. Uh, as a matter of fact, my brother passed away on September 4th. Uh, my nephew, his only son, uh, and they were down in Florida, also had COVID. He survived, uh, as did his wife. But uh, my 92-year-old mother, was in a nursing home in Florida, uh, has also survived. And, uh, and again, you know, these are, these are difficult situations for everybody. But I think if we dehumanize 
the 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 impacts of these things on on people that's when we we tend to make really poor decisions about how we're going to approach and attack uh what's going on um you know frankly i have a lot of uh, anger <laughs> uh with regard to my brother's death because i feel that to a certain degree it was probably avoidable but a lot of the misinformation that came out of public officials and governments at the state and at the local level and at the national level, I think led a lot of people in the wrong direction, both black and white and Hispanic and otherwise uh, to make bad decisions and bad choices. And that certainly contributed to the large number of, of, uh, of people who have not survived uh, you know, the COVID-19 uh, disaster. Uh, my, my, my wife had major surgery on the day that my brother passed away, so I was unable to attend his funeral. And again, that's the story of so many people throughout this pandemic period. So I appreciate your uh, your sentiments there, but uh, I'm not alone. Uh, I'm, I'm in a, a club that I never wanted to be in, and that's, you know, 450,000 people who have lost uh, people that they've cared about. And I, one thing I just want to point out for those who are listening and also for those next generation of emergency managers, uh, disaster recovery specialists, whatever, uh, you know, whatever title you may have, and that is uh, not to lose sight, as I think, as you pointed out, um, of, you know, the, 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 there's the big picture and the little picture, and that big picture is painted with little strokes, and each of those strokes is an individual that makes up that uh, composite and not to lose sight of that because it's uh, it's the humanity of it and that's why we do what we do. It's often difficult because I mean I'm sure as you've experienced you know you pursue it with passion, uh, you pursue it with a certain ethical approach and it's hard right. Sometimes you can't save everyone and sometimes you that stress really builds up. So. Uh, it's it's something that that every emergency manager needs to be aware of that psychosocial component uh, for the community, but also for themselves and what goes on inside of them. Absolutely. I want to touch upon something you talked about before, and that's the title of uh, a, a recent uh, or blog that you published this year, uh, which is titled "Why I Became an Anti-Disaster Kit Advocate." Um, so, and and this is something again as as we, we see, and, and I'm, I would say I'm, I'm guilty as charged. I've, I've been there and I, I do on a regular basis, <laughs> ask individuals, even, even when I speak to emergency managers, I ask for a show of hands. Unfortunately, nowadays, much of it's done through Zoom. So I can't see all the hands necessarily go up or not go up. But when I ask the question, do you have an emergency kit? Oftentimes the answer is no. Even among emergency managers, you know, if I ask them, if I start to get into questions, how, when did you last, uh, you know, take it out and, you know, take a look at everything and review everything and go over your plans to make sure it's current. You know, I get those sheepish looks at times. Um, so in, in your blog, you state pushing individuals to build a household or a family emergency kit for disasters. Sometimes it's called a go bag is just not effective. That socially vulnerable households cannot afford it and that it is better to focus on communities and neighborhoods. Can you elaborate on what areas should be the focus of community preparedness? Absolutely. Um, and, and to expand on that, uh, part of the what I said earlier with regard to the doctrine that became preparedness uh, stated uh, a bunch of emergency managers deciding that preparedness had something to do with a disaster kit. 
So it became the mantra, if you will, of what preparedness was supposed to be. And it's failed miserably. Uh, you know, I quote uh, former FEMA administrator Brock Long, who I've known for a number of years and who is one of the, the finest and most, uh, most qualified emergency managers in this business, who said after Hurricane uh, Maria, we have failed to create a culture of preparedness. Uh, to which my response was, no kidding, uh, because by FEMA's own admission, more than 60% of people who have, have done uh, you know, nothing to prepare, uh, in reality, that's more like probably 90 to 95%. Preparedness is not a disaster kit. A disaster kit is a convenience item at best. Uh, I, I challenge my emergency managers, uh, both publicly and, and privately, to cite me one, just one single instance where somebody says, my disaster kid saved my life, okay? And in the absence of that, what it proves is that a disaster kit, while it might be a novel idea and a very cute thing to do, uh, is not going to save your life if your house is floating down the street and you're on the rooftop. Um, you know, a disaster kit would not have helped the 1800 people who drowned in Hurricane Katrina. What would have helped them was disaster literacy was to have real knowledge of the real risk that they were under. Because I guarantee you, and I said this to people, I say this to people all the time, that those 1800 people who drowned in Katrina from the 30 foot wall of water that came through following the disaster would have gladly walked out of New Orleans had they understood the real risk uh, to their lives, not the risk of being inconvenienced. So I'm the anti-disaster kid person because I think it's been overstated and overblown as some kind of solution to something when it's really only a convenience item. Have one if you want, but if you don't, it's not gonna matter. What is going to matter is knowledge. And what we need to be uh, focusing on in preparedness is not a, a physical thing, but is creating a mindset of preparedness. Preparedness is more uh, related to what you are doing, not what you have. Uh, I say to people, Talk to a single mother and say to her, yeah, I want you to take two cans of tuna and some extra cash and put it in a plastic uh, tote and shove it under your bed because, you know, you'll be ready when the next disaster comes. And she's going to tell you that if she has any extra tuna, it's going to be dinner uh, for her children for the next couple of days. And if she has any extra cash, it's going to be bus fare to get to her minimum wage job. So what are you talking to her about? And is she listening? So the answer is not, do we have what is physically necessary? It's do we have the knowledge that's necessary to survive? And I say that, and I say each neighborhood should be equipped. And a great example of this happened when I was out in Washington, when I was working for Amazon. One of the local emergency managers there in, a, in one of the local uh, cities outside of Seattle had prepared these neighborhood uh, what I call carts, They're literally a metal cart with uh, communications equipment on it, uh, modems, uh, inside with some you know, disaster supplies, first aid kits. He had one of these carts, which is on wheels, stored in the home of people within his community in every neighborhood in his community. <laughs> because he understood that everybody in the community is not gonna have a disaster kit or a ham radio to communicate with the outside world or a flashlight with batteries. And he clearly understood that, that 
that preparedness was a community effort, not an individual effort. I think as Americans, we get too far off into the me, 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 mm -hmm. and we get too far away from the we, we, we. Because at the end of the day, neighbor helping neighbor is what's going to cause us or put us in a position to survive. Uh, I live in a very nice uh, neighborhood in the west suburbs of Chicago, uh, sprawling ranch uh, home. Uh, I've got plenty of room in my basement to store all kinds of disaster supplies, water, meals ready to eat, and anything else I want to keep. I've got the means to go out and buy that stuff. Why don't I? Because it's not going to make any difference uh, if the people next door to me or down the street from me don't have the same thing. And if they're not equipped to survive a disaster, when the disaster happens, they're going to find out that I have the stuff and they're coming to get it. And they're not going to be coming friendly. They're going to be coming desperate uh, because they're trying to survive and they're trying to feed their families and they need what I have. So why not spread those resources around, not only the physical resources, but there are also people in my neighborhood that need to know that Joe down the street uh, is a... Uh, is a firefighter who was trained in CPR and first aid. And, and Susie, uh, down at the other end of the block, uh, she knows how to administer shots because she's a nurse practitioner. Uh, so neighborhoods and neighbors need to connect together to find out what are the common resources that they can use to help each other survive, not just this is about me and mine. I should mention that I am a volunteer with the community emergency response team uh, within my community. And there are many throughout the United States. There's also, of course, the Red Cross or Salvation Army. There's many different uh, private voluntary organizations that are active in you know, disaster response or emergency preparedness. Uh, the Red Cross is one of the more famous ones. And, you know, you, you've worked for the Red Cross, so, you know, you, you know what I'm speaking. Is that, is that an approach that you recommend uh, as part of this, or is there, uh, do, do you see this happening more organically uh, on a neighborhood level? Well, I recommend it, but I, uh, and insert, by the way, I did a, I did a whole piece in, uh, in uh, the uh, Domestic Preparedness Journal about this, uh, the, the, uh, the failures of certain whole community. Uh, and, and, and in there, I pointed out uh, CERT is a great program. The conceptually CERT is one of the best programs that ever came out uh, in terms of its concept. However, the failure of CERT was that it was not, again, it was created by people uh, who uh, had one view of what the value of CERT was. And so CERT has worked very well in rural, urban, uh, rural and, excuse me, suburban communities. Uh, it has not worked very well in urban communities. And, and to cite you an example, uh, I live in DuPage County, which is just west of Chicago. And the certain DuPage County is over 800 people uh, that belong to a very strong CERT team. Uh, but why is it so strong in DuPage County? Because we live in neighborhoods that are socially connected. Mm -hmm. And by that, I mean, my neighbors made it a point to come up to me when I moved into this neighborhood and introduce themselves and say, hi, here's who I am and here's where I live and who are you and what do you do? And, you know, let's get to know each other. Uh, that's a staple of, of the suburbs, knowing your neighbors, uh, the people down the block, the people next door. In the city, not so much. Uh, as you know, being from New York and Chicago, people are less 
are more reluctant to get to know their neighbors for a lot of reasons, uh, for safety reasons, et cetera. But it doesn't mean that they can't benefit from CERT or programs like CERT. However, it was designed again, uh, and going back to the diversity issue by people who had one view of what this should be. And so they designed it around that view, uh, ignoring the fact that, um, for example, in the city of Chicago, um, they are against the CERT program, not because it's not a good program, but because they have 10,000 people that work for an organization called the Office of Emergency Management and Communications. And those folks uh, are paid to do the things that CERT would normally do in a neighborhood, traffic control, light search and rescue, uh, assisting law enforcement. Uh, so they don't want volunteers out there doing that because the city is a big target for liability lawsuits and all kinds of other things that could go wrong. But there is a need in urban communities, for example, for what we call safe passage to schools. In some neighborhoods where there's high crime or high gang activity, you have these ragtag groups of parents who have come together to help make sure that their kids get back and forth to school safely. And those people need to be supported by CERT type programs where they're trained they're trained together, they're equipped with the proper equipment that they need. That's not happening because CERT is, was created to be so rigid that it requires that you be connected to a, a fire department or a municipal government entity. Uh, it has all of these requirements that are not relevant culturally to urban communities. So CERT's a great program. It needs to be uh, retooled to make it work and make it be relevant for all types of communities, not just suburban and rural communities where everybody knows each other and there's a whole different set of dynamics going on. And, and, and then CERT will become extremely valuable. But that goes back to that issue, issue of diversity. Who designed the program? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and they designed it not intentionally to exclude or uh, 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 not be uh, relevant to anyone else. They designed it based on what they know from their perspective, okay? If I was raised in the suburbs as I was, I'm not gonna look at what goes on in the city because I really don't understand what goes on in the city except for what I see on the news news reports. And so I think we, we need to take a long look at, again, this whole issue of diversity and inclusion in emergency management to make sure that we have not racial or ethnic diversity, but diversity of opinions, mm -hmm. diversity of ideas. For example, if, if anyone had been in that room with us, when we thought that preparedness had something to do with a disaster kit. If anyone had been in that room from public health or human services, they would have said to us, I don't think you want to do this FEMA because A, you're not equipped to do it. That is, that's not part of your core mission. B, uh, it is, it is a pre, you know, preparedness is a pre-disaster uh, issue, not a post-disaster issue. And C, you will never ever be able to do the one thing that you can't do because of the sheer design of your agency, and that is study outcomes. Mm -hmm. Now, my brother worked for 40 plus years in human services until he retired uh, last year, my oldest brother. And uh, he said to me once, he said, Vince, how do you think we know that if Johnny is not reading by grade level by the time he's in third grade, that he stands a 78% chance of going to prison. And I said, 
No, how do you know that? He said, we do research mm -hmm. and we research outcomes. FEMA does not research outcomes. That's not their, their job and it's not what they're capable of. So having somebody in charge of preparedness that is not equipped to really understand that preparedness is a behavior, not a thing, mm -hmm. uh, would have been very helpful and it would have moved the needle on preparedness that has been stagnant for the past 20 years. I should mention that there are a lot of research institutes that are out there, uh, out in Colorado. There's, of course, the, the University of Delaware. Uh, there's a center there for uh, disaster research and emergency management started by Quarantelli, you know, one of the, the greats. Of course, it's, it's an elusive goal. It's very hard to sort of pin those outcomes down. Relate in that same article, you mentioned that emergency managers need to consider metrics and measuring com community preparedness. So I wanted to ask what might those metrics look like and what would a program that measures community preparedness look like? Certainly, uh, that's, that's, that's an easy one. Uh, every every opportunity I get to speak to emergency managers or emergency management uh, students or practitioners, I ask the question, how do you measure preparedness in your community? And everybody has these quizzical looks and they look around at each other. And then I say specifically, how many of you by show of, of hands is, uh, can say in your community, uh, and these are local emergency managers in your community, uh, can tell me how many people in your community are trained in CPR and first aid? How many people in your community or how many organizations in your community have disaster plans? Uh, how many of your daycare centers, your places of worship, your small businesses, uh, uh, your uh, community-based organizations participate in exercises and drills alongside the first responders? Nobody can tell me that because they're not doing it. <laughs> they're not measuring it. Uh, and it, there seems to be this sort of uh, a, a fear, if you will, among emergency managers that if I start to measure something, uh, it, it's going to expose the fact that I'm not doing well. Well, that's the whole purpose of having metrics, is to understand where you are in relationship to a baseline and where you need to get to. So I was on a panel, a roundtable a couple of years ago at, uh, at IEM, where uh, an International Association of Emergency Managers conference, where I was on a roundtable with some of my peers. And they were all talking about the great programs that they were doing in preparedness uh, in their various municipalities. And when they got around to me, uh, they said, so what do you think about all, about all that, Vince? And I said, that's all fine and good. But I said, if you can't measure it, it doesn't matter. If you're doing these feel-good programs and say, hey, we did this great thing and we had this, this great program and, and, and it was all well received. Uh, if you can't tell me what difference it made in the next disaster, then what have you really accomplished? Uh, you've checked off a box that says we did something, but is the something that you're doing really meaningful? Is it really tangible? Did it garner the desired results? Because this issue of emergency preparedness is not about, again, preparing people not to be inconvenienced. It's about saving people's lives. Mm -hmm. It's about alleviating unnecessary suffering. You know, Hurricane Katrina was supposed to be the poster child that got us back on the right track in terms of what was important about community preparedness. And guess what? 15 years after Katrina, we're worse off than we were before Katrina. 
We're, we're in far worse shape in terms of our communities being unprepared because we not focused on disaster literacy as the baseline for preparedness. And when I say disaster literacy, I mean, do people understand the risks in their community? Uh, is preparedness a part of, is it a get to or is it a have to? In other words, is it something that, that they need to be, that needs to be a part of everything that you're doing every day? When you go to the doctor's office to get your, uh, your, your checkup and your, your tests, uh, the doctor should be handing you a pamphlet saying, oh, by the way, uh, have you had your uh, COVID-19 shot and uh, are you prepared for the disaster? Do you, have you done this? Have you put aside your medications to make sure that you have uh, extra medications if you should need them? Mm -hmm. uh, when you go to school, there should be programs within the schools to talk to children uh, and young people about preparedness and what it means to be uh, prepared. Uh, when you uh, go to uh, sporting events, there should be information at the stadium or, or the, the gym about preparedness. Preparedness has to become a part of what we're doing, not a get to, because if it's a get to, people aren't gonna ever get to it because they've got families, they've got jobs, they've got school. They've got all kinds of a myriad of priorities that take precedence in their life. And so if you talk to them about preparedness as something that's this high lofty goal that they need to accomplish, they're never gonna get to it. So it's gotta be already embedded, if you will, in things that they're already doing, not extra things that they have to do. Absolutely. Well, Vince, it's it's really been uh, a great pleasure uh, speaking to you about these uh, topics and uh, to hear from your experience and uh, to understand better how we uh, in the emergency management community can uh, better address these needs uh, that still need a lot of work for us to do. So uh, I want to thank you very much for coming on the podcast and, and sharing that with us. Well, thank you so much for having me. Um, I spoke with Vincent B. Davis, who is Director of Disaster Services at Feeding America and is a seasoned consultant, author, speaker with extensive experience in emergency management planning, training, crisis management, community relations, program management, and development. You may find out more information at www.pinnacleperformancemanagementalloneword.com. At Riding the Wave, we like to get your feedback, and you may contact me directly at my email address, andrew at pinnacleperformancemanagement.com. Thanks for listening, and come back soon for our next podcast. You've been listening to Riding the Wave, hosted by Andrew Boyarski, president of Pinnacle Performance Management and Clinical Associate Professor in Emergency and Project Management at NYU and John Jay College. All thoughts are his own.